In the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear saints of God, with might, with might of ours, can nothing be done. Soon our loss would be effected. But for us fights the valiant one, chosen by God. You ask who this is? Jesus. Who fights for you. To keep you and to bless you. And to give you all that you need. Jesus Christ it is. Lord of hosts. The valiant one. If we, uh, if we can receive the storms of this last week as Christians uh, by the Holy Spirit, that is, as a gift from God to benefit us, then we will receive them this way. We will, we will receive them as a reminder of our own humility, of our own creatureliness, of our own smallness. We'll remember that while there's a lot of powerful buttons in Washington, D.C. that can blow things up or do whatever, there's no button to turn off the weather. There's apparently no button even in Austin to turn on the power. (laughs) As much as we think we have achieved this technological greatness and might, the Lord reminds us that no, we are never without need of His help, His deliverance. By might of ours cannot be done. So we stand even before nature humbled, but more before God humbled, knowing that we need a helper and delighting that He is here to help. Now, this is the the great import of this text of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. But it just, I don't, I I can't pass by the Old Testament or the epistle without just saying a couple of words about them. Genesis 22 is our Old Testament reading, the the account of uh, Abraham sent to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, the place where the temple would be built and the sacrifices would be offered in the days of uh, Jerusalem. And they go, you can just imagine the, the stunningness of it. They're, they're getting ready to go up the hill after going three days' journey, and there the wood is on the back of Isaac, and he says, Father, here's the fire, and, and here's the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide himself the sacrifice. And Abraham goes to offer Isaac. Now, I think there's something that's easy to miss about this text. Because we often see the sacrifice commanded of Abraham to offer Isaac on the altar as a test of Abraham's obedience or a test of Abraham's love. But if we read the text that way, we're missing it. It is a test of Abraham's faith. Faith, remember, which believes the promise. Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was the one that the Lord said, through him... You will have as many children as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Through him, the promised seed given to the promise given to Eve in the garden that your seed would crush the head of the devil. Through Isaac, that promise will be fulfilled. In other words, the Lord had said to Abram, and, and now Abraham, that through Isaac you'll have generations, you'll be a blessing to the nation, the Messiah will come, and Isaac didn't have any children. Not yet. 
So Abraham knew that God, who hadn't kept his promise, yet would keep his promise. And so he was not afraid to sacrifice Isaac because he knew that if he did, God would give him back to him from the dead. That's what Hebrews tells us, and that's why. Abraham sacrificed Isaac knowing that God would raise Isaac, and Hebrews tells us, in a way he did. Why? Because on Isaac, the promise rested. The promise of the Messiah. The promise of blessings to the Gentiles. And so Abram goes and is able to to lift the knife to kill his son Isaac, knowing that Isaac would not stay dead. That's the test there, and that's the test that Abram passes. And the Lord does provide a ram caught in the thicket. We can't miss the picture of Jesus crowned in thorns there. The ram in the thicket that takes the place of Isaac. The sacrifice in his place. In James, we heard a beautiful text uh, explain the anatomy of temptation. It's your homework to go and read through James chapter 1 again, and especially this verse 14 and 15. When each person is tempted, he's lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin grows up, it's death. So that every sin starts in the ninth and 10th commandments, covetousness, and winds its way through all the other commandments until finally it ends in breaking the first commandment, idolatry and spiritual death. Sin starts in us. Now we need to think about that a little bit because the temptation of Jesus is different. The temptation of Jesus is outside only. The temptation of Jesus is from the world and the devil, not from his sinful flesh. He didn't possess a sinful flesh. But nonetheless, the temptation comes to Jesus as equally fierce. And that's where we turn our attention now, Mark chapter 1. The temptation of Jesus is recorded for us in all three of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we notice when we turn to this account in Mark that it's a lot shorter than the others. For whatever reason, St. Mark has decided that we don't need the accounts of the three different temptations that we're used to hearing about the temptation to turn uh, the stones into bread. After Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and, the text tells us, was hungry. Or the temptation to, to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple in accord to Psalm 91, the psalm we just sang, that he will give his angels to guard you in all of your ways. You won't dash your foot against a stone. The devil misquotes the text and tries to tempt Jesus to test God. He refuses. Shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Or the temptation to bow down and worship the devil. That is the temptation to avoid the suffering of the cross. Just to get it all over with. The devil says, I'll give you everything you want. All the nations. If you only will bow down and worship me. But Jesus refuses also. You shall worship the Lord and him only. He refuses in all of these places. But Mark just says that he went out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's all it says. In fact, Mark adds a couple of things. It's easy for us to miss this when we compare it with with Luke and with Matthew. It says in chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. I think in Matthew it's he took him out, in Luke he led him out, but here it's he threw him into the wilderness. The word that's used there in the Greek is the same word used to describe what Jesus does to the demons. He casts them out. So the Spirit hurls Jesus into the wilderness. And we should remember that that's what it means to be baptized. When we're baptized, we are marked by the Lord 
on our foreheads and on our chest as, as those redeemed by Christ the crucified. And when we are marked by the Lord, we are marked for the devil's attack. We are set apart for the devil's assaults. The Christian life is a wilderness life. It says he, in verse 13, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Matthew and Luke call the devil the devil. Here, Mark reminds us that the devil is Satan, the accuser. The one who afflicts us not only in body but also in soul. Who brings, tries to bring the judgment of God against our conscience. And Mark tells us, none of the other Gospels mentioned this, that Jesus was with the wild animals. I don't know how you're... I have to correct my own imagination because when I imagine Jesus in the wilderness, he's kind of out. I kind of imagine like the, the desert in Arizona with the cactuses sitting there, you know, and the tumbleweeds kind of rolling around and it's just sort of empty and Jesus is all there by himself. But he wasn't by himself. You have to picture... You have to put the beasts in there. The jackals and the, and the hyenas and the serpents and the scorpions. And maybe there's nice beasts too, but this is not pleasant beasts here. It's, a, it's the undoing of the Garden of Eden. Remember how Adam and Eve were surrounded by all the animals and he had given them, and, and Adam was there to give them all of the names. Now Jesus is, is in the wilderness surrounded by the beasts and he is there, make no mistake, to stand where Adam and Eve fell. I think that this temptation of Jesus is preached a lot of times as advice. And it should be advice for us. I don't want to take it away from this. But normally you hear a sermon something like this. Like, the devil came to tempt Jesus. And look, Jesus withstood the devil and he stood against the temptations by using the word of God. And we should do the same. And that's right. We should do the same. And we have the same word of God that Jesus uses. Jesus resists the devil, not with his divine power, but with the power of the word of God. With the preaching of Moses. Three times he quotes from Deuteronomy. And that's right. But that's not the only thing that's happening. Mark wants this to be clear to us. That Jesus is restoring paradise. Lost in the fall. Brought back now in the wilderness. That Jesus is standing where no one else stood before. And he's doing that for us. Imagine, or maybe not imagine, maybe just remember how good the devil is at tempting. Tempting people to sin. When there was only two people, and they were perfect, Adam and Eve, he succeeded. And Adam and Eve fell. And the devil has succeeded Ever since then, there's not a single person in the history of the world that the devil has not tempted to sin, including you, including me. The devil is 100% effective in his scandalous work of temptation. 100% minus one. There is one who stood and withstood. There is one who was tempted in every way like us and did not fall. And he did that for you. When I was, when I was 19, I was wandering around Israel and uh, I, went, I ended up in this little village in Palestine and there was a priest there who was building a college and I was kind of helping his electrician for a few days 
kind of get things up and running. And so we would have devotions, and he would always speak of Jesus in what I thought was a sort of funny, at least a curious way. He would always call Jesus our friend and our champion. Our champion, Jesus Christ. And I always thought it was funny, but the more I think about it, the more I think that is right. Jesus is the one who goes out and fights for us. Like the armies of Israel, trembling there as Goliath stood before him and, and, and intimidated them and brought them all this fear, and they didn't have a champion. They didn't have anyone who would go out and fight the giant until David comes along and says, I'll go and take him on. So it is with Jesus. He goes to fight for you, to stand for you, to, to, to fight against the devil, to destroy him, to undo his kingdom, to unravel his power, to stand where Adam and Eve and you and I fell, and to do it all for you. In your place. To forgive your sins and to help you fight against sin. Now there's a huge advantage when it comes to the thinking about the temptation of Jesus. Uh, because we don't, have to, we don't have to wonder about what it means because the Bible tells us. There's two particular places, two texts that I want to read for you and just put in your mind to think about when it comes to this temptation. And they are Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4. First, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says this. In all things, he, Jesus had to be made like his brothers so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you remember that the high priest in the Old Testament would go into the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, but he would go in there twice. He would go in there first with the blood of a bull sacrificed for his own sin, and then he would go in a second time with the blood of a goat sacrificed for the sins of the people. In other words, the high priest, to minister faithfully, not only has to know the sins of the people, but he has to know those sins himself. He has to feel it himself. So Jesus not only bears the iniquity of our sin, but he bears the trouble of our sin, even the temptation of our sin, even the feeling of our own sin. It says more in Hebrews chapter 4. It says it like this. This is Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a high priest, Jesus, who not only knows the, the, the trouble of sin, but knows the temptation to sin. He knows the agony of it. He, he, he knows the, 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 the struggle that you're going through. The desire to do what's wrong. Now, we have to remember that Jesus 
always was tempted from the outside, not from the inside, and that he never fell to temptation. He resisted it all the way through. But how much worse is that suffering then that he endured for you? So that Jesus is your high priest who takes away your sin, but who is not, who is able to sympathize with you, who is able to understand. When you go and pray and carry before the Lord all of your struggles and all of your difficulties and all of your temptations and you carry them before the Lord, He says to you, I understand what you're going through. I know what you're talking about. It's true. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but a high priest who can. A high priest who knows the struggle. Now, this is such great comfort for us. It's such great comfort for me. Because when we see the law of sin working in our own flesh, when we see our own weakness, when we see our own miserable, dying, sinful, greedy, lusty, angry, bitter, idolatrous flesh flaring up, and we, and we see it, and we hate it, and we despise it, we come to Jesus and we think, He must hate us for it too. He must be disgusted with us. He must hold His nose at our sinful flesh. He does not. He does not hate you. He hates it with you. He hates your sin alongside of you. And he's helping you all the way. Helping you help. Bringing you through this life at last to death when he will deliver you from sin. (laughs) Deliver you from temptation. Deliver you from weakness. Deliver you from death. Deliver you from all of it. He does not despise you. He's not ashamed of you. (laughs) He loves you. And he's with you. This is the comfort of the temptation of Jesus. That he was there for us. Make no mistake. Restoring the kingdom of God. He was there for you, forgiving sin. And that he's here with you now. He has compassion. He has affection for you. He smiles at you, even in the midst of all of the temptation. He he smiles at you, and he says, we're going to get through it all. I'm by your side. With might of ours, cannot be done. Soon we're the loss affected. But for you fights the value. God himself elected. You wonder who it is? Jesus Christ, it is. Lord of hosts, who holds the field forever. And he continues to hold the field for you. May God grant that in the midst of this troubled life, we have this comfort. That Jesus, who is not angry at us, stands with us. Holds us, protects us and keeps us. May God grant us his faith through Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen.